welcome back to Hot Off the Pod. I'm your co-host, Harper Lambert. And I'm Melanie Zement. Today, we are going to be talking about the new California COVID Notify program, which is being piloted at UCSB. On November 16th, UCSB students received an email urging them to sign up for the program, which uses students' phones to track and notify positive test results that come within proximity of the student. For today's episode, we're sitting down with Dr. Ali Javenbacht, who has served as the medical director at UCSB's Student Health since 2015 and is also a proud UCSB alumnus himself. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So as a public health official, I guess having you on this podcast is pretty much making you just work on the weekend. So first of all, sorry about that. But (laughs) in all seriousness, uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about how the pandemic has impacted your day-to-day life and what you do as medical director of student health? Initially, as the pandemic was growing and cases were going up and we didn't know how it was going to impact us, it had to be a lot of really rapid, big changes in our operations. For example, we had to go down to one point of entry, whereas before we had five or six different points of entry. We had to launch telehealth visits really quickly within a span of a couple of weeks with the technology and the software set up for people to be able to do telehealth visits at student health or even at home. And it seemed like at that time, so much new information was coming out so quickly that as soon as we made one adjustment, we'd get new information saying that adjustment is just obsolete. And now you have to step up and do another one. So that was a big ramping up, intense flurry of activity and big fundamental changes. And then at some point things settled down a bit and then we had to switch over to more of a maintenance mode of all the changes that we had done as far as the balance of telehealth. And then how do we add in-person health uh, visits in an appropriate manner so that people who need care get the care, but at the same time we keep them safe and we keep our staff safe. And the other the impact that it's had on the campus with so few students being in campus housing compared to before has really impacted our volume and the type of care that we do. So our in-person volume is less, but a lot of the non-face-to-face stuff is maybe a little bit more than it used to be as far as messaging back and forth and addressing needs, coordinating care with other UC student healths across the system where our students can go and get reciprocity care or their students can come to us to get reciprocity care. Uh, So it has been a big, big fundamental change for us. And even internally, like we have staff meetings every Wednesday, but we couldn't do that anymore in person. So we had to switch all that to Zoom. And yeah, so there was big, big changes on so many levels uh, all throughout student health. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you guys run a tight ship, I've noticed. Every time I go to get tested at the Loma Polona Center, I'm like, wow, they have turned this building into just a machine for getting students in and out. And it's really impressive. What was the blueprint for how COVID testing works? Is this something that's standardized across the different UC campuses? Or was it just a matter of trial and error and figuring out like what was the most efficient way? There wasn't any standardized method or pattern, not only across the UC, but even in the realm of public health that we knew of. So Santa Barbara County Public Health had a plan set up. Their operation was 140 tests a day. That was not gonna fly for us. We need to do a thousand per location per day. It really was 
us having to create that and invent that from nothing. So major props to the person who was really in charge of it, Holly Smith. Uh, she was our nursing supervisor, infection control coordinator, anterior immunization coordinator. She got pulled out of student health to run that operation. The experience that she'd had in the past was with running mass um, vaccination clinics. So she'd put together a number of mass flu clinics where large numbers of students come through and get the flu vaccine or HPV clinics or getting entry immunization vaccines for students coming in who needed to get updated on different vaccines. So that general blueprint of controlling flow and ensuring accuracy, there had been some experience with that, but this was a whole other level, it's entirely different scale. And there were so many more safety measures that needed to be in place because now you have to be careful of where are you collecting the sample, inside or outside? What sample are you collecting, your nose or your throat or a saw or a spit? And the other part was staffing. We didn't have medical staff to carry all this. A lot of them are redeployed staff from other departments who had no experience doing anything medical whatsoever. So that whole staff needed to be trained. And then you had the IT side of setting up a way for people to go through a portal to get an appointment, come into that appointment, get checked in, make sure the label's on the right file, walk them through the process so you don't have a backlog of people come together, so people move through quickly, but you still get the sample that you need and make sure that it's accurately labeled. So it was a, a huge, huge undertaking that was set up in really short time with very limited resources. So yeah, absolutely very, very impressive endeavor and major credit to um, again our nurse, Holly Smith, who really put it all together. Yeah, definitely major kudos. I was like in and out of that place in five minutes when I went to get tested, which was wonderful. So kind of turning to this Cal COVID Notify program, can you tell us just a little bit of background information on how it works? Yes. So it's voluntary. So people will choose whether they want to participate or not. They update their phone to the latest operating system. And one of the options there is the Cal COVID Notify. If they activate that, then what that means is their phone is now assigned basically an anonymous key, as they call it. It's like an alphanumeric string. And if it's ever within six feet of any other phone that has this activated, through Bluetooth, the two devices recognize each other and start to keep a tab. And then if somebody who, who is on this gets tested positive, they can decide, yes, I want to tell through CalCOVID, whoever I was near for closer than six feet for more than 15 minutes, that they were exposed. And so they activate that, then their key syncs up to a key in the cloud. And in the cloud, it has a list of all the other keys that it was near, and a notification goes out to all those keys. So other people on their phone get a notification. And from what I understand, what it says is you were exposed to COVID. And it doesn't say who you were exposed to or where you were exposed or how you were exposed, just as you were exposed. And then it's on the person receiving it, they can choose if they want to do anything about it. If they want to reach out, go get tested. Cool. So just to clarify, it's not an application on your phone at all? From what I understand, it's not, an app, it's not a specific application that people need to download, like going through the uh, App Store or uh, the Google um, Store. It's just part of the operating system. So it's like the same way you would activate notifications for certain things, certain apps and certain messages. One of them is the CalCOVID. You activate that in your notification settings, at least on iOS, and then that's what uh, activates the feature. 
Something I've been wondering about is the way that the reporting works. Is this something you have to manually do when you receive a positive result or the place that you got tested, the testing center, do they do that for you? It's not an automatic process. So there is a decision making involved. From what I understand, and I don't know all the specific details, but either the individual who gets it decides that they're going to put it in or whoever tests the individual test comes back positive. The part of that process of notifying the person who is positive is saying, hey, looks like you're on CalCOVID. Do you want us to notify? I don't know which one of those it works, but there is a decision to be made. And the person who tests positive is aware that that notification is going out. The other piece that a lot of people worry about is, is it going to divulge my personal information? How old I am, what my name is, where I live, and what I do. It's not linked to any of that. It has nothing to do with the individual. It's purely that device. So, for example, if someone leaves their house and forgets their phone at home, and they're near someone who had tested positive, they're not going to be notified because the phone wasn't there to make that connection. Or uh, if someone else is borrowing your phone, and they're out somewhere and they're near someone for six feet for more than 50 minutes, then they get a notification, but it wasn't you, it was your friend, but you won't know because it doesn't tell you when, where, or how. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I think it sounds a little scary, the concept of trusting your location to whatever unknown entity or the state or whoever is running the app to track your location because people, I think, have recently become kind of wary about how surveillance is built into our mobile networks. And I think, you know, the website does a great job of explaining exactly how this works and why this isn't really an infringement on anyone's privacy. But is there anything you would say to people who are worried about this to try to change their minds? Yeah, I think elements to keep in mind is that it's not based on geographic location. It's based on location relative to another device. So it has no idea where you were. All it knows is that wherever you were, there was one device near you and that device is positive and so it notifies you. And so there, there are all layers of security and privacy built into it so that whatever information gets connected to the cloud or the server is really just that number. But ultimately it does take a little bit of trust and faith in the system because nothing is fallible and if someone is just dead set on being suspicious of any kind of intervention and they want, don't want to participate, it's voluntary. Uh, but again, as far as we know, all the right appropriate safeguard measures have been put in place. Right. And I think people are also probably just concerned about that stigma of getting a positive test, having their identities revealed, which I know there are safeties in place to make sure that doesn't happen. But it's probably one good reason for having a manual reporting option instead of just having it be automatic. Maybe put some of those uh, worries to rest. So I also was wondering, I saw on the website that only a select number of UC campuses were chosen to pilot this program. And I think that includes Davis, UCLA, Berkeley, Riverside, and UC San Francisco. All of them launched their programs within the last week. And I was wondering how these schools were chosen and especially how UCSB got added to the mix. Uh, so from what I know, it was a general agreement between the UC Office of the President and the developers of this app in the state who were trying to collaborate. And so from the UC Office of the President side, it was voluntary to the campuses. 
So uh, as part of there's regular ongoing COVID related meetings almost weekly throughout the system. And one of the discussion points was there's this new app coming out. We need campuses who are wanting to test it out and see how it works. And so the campuses really volunteered. Uh, and UCSB was one of the campuses that volunteered. The person in charge, Katie Mankins, has more of an eye view of the overall IT infrastructure and in collaboration with the COVID response team. They all kind of got together and felt that UCSB could launch this pilot, that it'd be worth doing, especially with our own concerns about Isla Vista being so close to campus, so densely populated, an area that the campus itself has no control over is the county. And so there's so many interactions. And when a student is positive and we reach out to them, it's hard for them to remember. Who were you around in the last four or five days within more than 15 minutes? While I was hanging out with my roommates, I know all of them. And as other people came over, I don't know who any of those people are. And so there's this big gap in us trying to really get a hold of it. So this really offers a big promise for us. And basically what came down to it for the UCs that volunteered was having the resources and the infrastructure to see if they could take it on. So a campus like UC Merced, they just didn't have the resources at this moment to take on a project like this, so they didn't volunteer for the pilot. But we felt like we had the resources to do it, and it was a really good chance for us to do even better in our COVID response, so we tried it out. So who exactly is responsible for tracking the effectiveness and or the progress of the application and, you know, seeing if this pilot is being effective and actually helping to stop the spread of COVID in our community? As far as I know, the main person on campus is Katie Mankins. She is involved with uh, basically campus operations on a big, broad, higher level. And so she's been our main contact with the developers and the state and the UCOP. Yeah. So let's look at where we're at with the virus. I know it changes so much every day, but just to kind of orient our listeners, at the time of recording now, things are not looking so good in Santa Barbara County. Just yesterday, the county reported 74 new cases, putting it at just above 10,800 cases. Isla Vista reported five new cases, putting it just below 500. And every day I get these emails from Santa Barbara Public Health that have these charts with the different areas and the cases they're reporting. There are different categories for like active cases, new cases, who's in ICU, et cetera. So what exactly does case count mean in this context? Is this the total number of cases or should we be paying more attention to the active number of cases at any given time? So each data point is part of the overall picture. So there's the total cumulative cases, and that's just good for us to know how many people have been impacted by it. And then you have the active cases. That kind of tells you right now how many people have the disease and can spread it and can take a turn for the worse and might need higher level of care. Uh, Then you have the number of recovered, and that's another metric that uh, they keep track of. So they all basically have their purpose. So I I think for people who are not familiar with epidemiology and biostatistics and all that stuff, what tends to be helpful is trends. So what we're looking for and what the state uses are basically positivity rates. So of all the people you test, what percent are positive? Because if you you could have more cases, but it could also be because you've done a whole lot more testing. So what we need to decide is, are we having more cases because we've just looked better? look deeper and further for it? Or is it truly there's more disease activity? And that's where the percent positivity comes in. If you test 500 people and you have 100 positive, that's a huge positivity rate. 
compared to testing 10,000 people and having 100 positive. So that positivity percent is what's really tracked, and that's where those tiers are set. So if people really want to get a sense of how we're doing and what the activity level is, that percent positivity will probably get a pretty meaningful sense of how acute the threat is. As testing centers have grown more efficient in their methods, do you think that these reporting numbers are getting more accurate? Yes, I think so. Part of it is that um, it could only get better because it started from nothing. There was, as far as I know, there was no setup for this kind of a mass testing for a very specific disease. And so, yeah, it's only getting more efficient. The testing is getting more accurate. The reporting system is getting better. So absolutely, yes, it's, it's improving all the time. It's comforting. So kind of taking a look at Isla Vista and zooming out from there, college students are getting a lot of the flack. And are you seeing this reflected in the case numbers? Are college students testing positive at a significantly higher rate than the rest of the population? Yeah, I can't speak for other areas that have colleges and college students living. But what we've noticed uh, here at UCSB is there was a time when numbers in the county were going up but we weren't seeing a lot of cases in Isla Vista. And then numbers of the county started going down, but we saw a big rise in cases in Isla Vista. And this was about maybe three or four weeks ago. And then the cases in Isla Vista, at least from what we've been checking over the last two or three weeks, has kind of dropped and leveled off. But the county ones have now started to go up. So I don't think it's fair to say that it's only college kids and only college campuses that are the driving factor. They're absolutely a big factor, and the concern is that they are a group that intermingles on a broader scale. Typical people who are in their middle ages, um, have families, they tend to just kind of stick with their core family group and maybe go to work and some neighbors and whatnot. But a college student's very different. They have a lot of different circles they connect with. And so that's one of the concerns is that there's more potential for exposure, and college students don't get terribly ill. And so they may not feel so ill that they have to stay at home because they feel so sick. I feel a little bit ill, but they're still kind of getting about. And so that's another way of transmitting it. So it's just issues unique to that group that need to be addressed. Same as there are issues unique to the elderly and high risk that need to be addressed. And it's matters adjusting the intervention to be appropriate for the group. What makes all this a little more tricky is we're not sure if our numbers that we're catching are a little lower just because we're not having as much disease activity? Or is it that people are not coming in to get tested? Anecdotally, we hear that people are going to Ventura to get tested. And over there, they're putting their permanent address as their address, so the county doesn't get notified of a positive result. If that's the case, we have no clue. They're nowhere on our radar. So it's, it's hard to get a gauge on that. My own personal, unfounded, biased, unsupported thought is that I don't think that's a huge factor just because when we have opened up testing, there's been a big uptake in signing up and getting the testing done. We had at our testing sites, uh, I think, gosh, what was it, Thursday? We had like 800 people that got tested. Friday, it was another 500 or one of the slots. So those slots were really filling up. So I'm, I'm glad that there's good response to coming in and getting tested here. It really helps us to keep track of it better. I think that there's a lot of intergenerational tension right now revolving around this virus and how seriously people are taking it, you know, especially with the holidays coming up and that being a huge concern. I think that like in our generation personally, there's this 
polarity where there's people on one end who are pretty careless for all the reasons you mentioned. Our news director at the Nexus, Max Abrams, has been going out and photographing all the partying over the last few months. And it's, you know, it's really disheartening. But then also, we're probably one of the most informed generations and active generations on social media. So I think there's like an equal and opposite reaction of people who are being so vigilant about it. And maybe in some cases, even more so than their older family members, at least, you know, that's how I feel. So, you know, with the holidays coming up and everything, what is the school expecting to see in terms of the number of cases when people return? How many people you think are going to go home versus staying here? It's a lot up in the air right now. Absolutely, it's a lot up in the air. The best thing to do is for people to not travel, period. It's risky, case numbers are high, and that kind of movement away from an area to a new area, mingling with people and then coming back to another area is a really strong factor in spreading disease either out of our area to other places or bringing it in from places that people have been. The second best thing would be if someone chooses to go home for the holidays to stay there until January, again, to minimize that back and forth. The third best thing is if someone leaves for the holidays, they choose to come back, they get tested within 48 hours of getting back here, sequester themselves. That means basically one step short of quarantining themselves to really, really limit any exposure to anybody else for a week. And they get retested at the end of that week. And that's about as good as we can get as far as catching someone who brings disease to the area. On that note, just a side note, really not directly related to anything that we're talking about, but just something that I've thought about a lot with COVID and young people these days. What COVID is asking is people putting the good of the community and everyone else ahead of their own interests. That, and especially now, I think the country realizes that young people are a big part of this. And if we're gonna get through this and really minimize the impact, we need buy-in from young people. What I find really ironic about this is that for decades now, all the issues that were relevant to young people, where young people were really asking and needing that same mindset from everybody else, the people in power, of we need healthcare, we need affordable education, we need a minimum wage that allows us to live and we don't starve. And the response from people in power has been, oh, come on, we're not gonna give you anything. You need to take care of yourself. We're not gonna give you handouts. And then I just find it really ironic that right now, those very same people are saying, hey, you all need to work with us. You need to be part of this community. And I just, I just find it ironic. It's interesting to think about how and to see whether students will be taking the messages that are being sent to them to heart and whether community leaders will maybe reach out and support the younger population in the future if they do buckle down and help us to get through this pandemic. So I was going to, you know, mention that Chancellor Yang sent an email announcing that while the majority of winter quarter classes will be online, there are still some more classes that will be in person winter quarter than fall quarter and some more on-campus housing that will be opening up obviously contingent on future circumstances, but do you think this is kind of surprising considering that, you know, there has been so many more cases in California and across the country in the last month, even compared to March when the pandemic first started? It was a tough, tough decision. 
so that the chancellor has a work group that meets, I think, four days of the week, and they talk about all this stuff in details, and there's perspective from the faculty, and the health side, and operations side, and student affairs, and Office of Student Life, and all that. So there was a lot of deliberation that went into it, and I think you can very legitimately and convincingly argue both sides. You can absolutely say the case that this is not the time to bring back a thousand students in the midst of these numbers going up. But then you could also say that, well, if we're going to bring back students, we'd rather be the ones that are housing them because we control how dense that housing is. We can at least make sure that they have good, reliable internet and the equipment they need to get their education. We can provide them with testing. And so just bringing a thousand students back in and of itself doesn't mean that it's going to be more risky. Could actually be that those thousand students that would otherwise be living in Isla Vista with 15 other people in a house or staying at home with elderly relatives, it's actually safer for them to be here. So you can argue both ways. I think bottom line, I think it was a good, reasonable decision. The number that's coming back is a reasonable number. I don't think it's kind of way too much that we cannot manage, especially where we are now with our testing process. And I don't know if you're all aware, but the campus itself has a test that they've developed that they're getting close to being able to run. They're gonna be able to run a good number of samples a day pretty quickly at a pretty low cost. So with that in mind, I think absolutely it's, it was a reasonable decision that was really not taken lightly. So the campus is thinking of opening its own processing center for these tests? Uh, the campus already has. So researchers on campus have a machine. Uh, it's called the polymerase chain reaction PCR. That's what people say is kind of the gold standard. They have one on campus that we run. And so we were able to get FDA approval to use that machine for our tests. That we can run a few hundred samples a day. There's also a couple of other tests and processes that are being developed. There was a process developed through Yale University where you take someone's saliva and use some really common reagents and you can get a test pretty accurate at really, really low cost. And Yale made that available to anybody who wants to use it. There was no, they're in charge of anybody just out there. You can try it. And I think they're looking at kind of validating that. And they have another one used on a technology called CRISPR, uh, which again can give results pretty quickly and at a much lower cost. So their campus has been very actively involved in providing that support. Part of the importance is that right now we send it to other places and we have no control over how quickly they give our results back. If that lab that we send it to gets a surge, our sample is going to be in there with everybody else. If there's a shortage of the reagents you need, they're going to be backed up and we have no control over that. Kind of trying, taking that control and putting it locally gives us control over that. We know exactly how many tests we can run. We can look for ways that we can get reagents that are uh, easier to get. We control the costs. We don't have to deal with profit markup or transportation or whatnot. So um, yes, the campus has done some really good work on that. And yeah, we're going to see um, kind of even more capacity coming forward. For a little bit more cautious optimism, a lot of vaccines seem to be reaching the final phases of research. The drug company Pfizer applied for an emergency FDA approval yesterday. And if approved, estimates report that the vaccine could be available to certain members of the population as early as December of this year. In your opinion, is this looking good for the vaccine? Should we start to prepare for the possibility of moving into this next phase of recovery? Absolutely. I think it's really, really reassuring and really good news that as of now, there are two very promising vaccines that could be available fairly soon. Uh, and yes, there has already been discussion about 
how do we deploy the vaccine? The California Department of Public Health, or the CDC, one of those, has a, has a graph basically on what that looks like. And it's really for any disease. So when a vaccine is first available, the supply is limited. So at that point, we need to be really specific and targeted on who gets it. Generally, it's going to be your first responders and people who are high risk. So in this case, it's going to be the elderly. As vaccine supply goes up, then you open it up to other levels of people and uh, eventually to a whole mass population. And then once everyone's gotten the inoculation, then if it's a type of thing where it has to be repeated at intervals, like the flu shot that has to be every year, then you switch over to kind of a maintenance mode of keeping it going. But yes, I think it's very promising and it could well be what helps to move us into the next phase of this pandemic, like you said. So do you see a future scenario where if a vaccine comes out, UCSB will require students to be vaccinated before returning to campus? Absolutely. I can definitely see that happening. That's, of course, decisions to be made at a higher level. But yes, given that this pandemic was really what has altered our work in so many ways, and if someone's going to be here on campus in person, we need to make sure that they're not spreading that risk. And so, yeah, that could very well be a requirement. And there's precedent for that. We already have an entry immunization requirement. Every single student coming in has to show proof that they've gotten measles, bumps, rubella, chickenpox, meningitis. Uh, and tetanus whooping cough boosters. And so this would be another item in that list. Does UCSB have any plans yet as to how they would disseminate the vaccine if that becomes a requirement for students? So part of it would really depend on how the vaccine is distributed. So if it's something that goes through the state and the California Public Health Department, they're going to determine how it's going to be done. So chances are, if that's the route it goes, the UC Office of the President is going to be talking with the California government, and then they're going to work out how it's going to get to the campuses and in what way and uh, how it's going to be distributed. So absolutely, there will be a plan coming on, but I suspect it's going to be more on a general population level, at least initially, because we need to be really targeted in those initial doses. So just to wrap up on a theoretical note, as scary as this pandemic is, vaccines are being produced faster than ever, and current technology like this program is aiding in stopping the spread of coronavirus. Do you think that all these factors are actually concretely helping to contain this pandemic faster than if we didn't have these tools? Absolutely. Yeah. I think without these tools, it would be very difficult to get a hold of it. So there has there needed to be a quick, robust response. And I think for the most part, it was carried out. What I think of, and I think what people really need to keep in mind as they're looking at our response to it is something like this, a pandemic, what it really needs, there's a central level of infrastructure that has to be in place. And that's basically the federal government's job is to have that initial level of support, which in a pandemic means travel restrictions, screenings, and getting information out. And with the power of the federal government, it's providing the tools that people need, which is personal protective equipment and testing. The way our government has handled it, those were not in place. When it was first coming out at Student Health, everybody was scrambling for personal protective equipment. You can find gloves anywhere. You can find masks anywhere. And so we had to do all the stuff about people having to wear cloth masks and that really impacted our operations. And initially when we really needed to test people, the testing supply was so low that we had to get authorization from the county to test somebody. And so we really missed that opportunity. And so that really held us back. And the lack of that central infrastructure in place then created extra work. So 
for example, us at Student Health, we had to come up with this whole process of mass testing and notifying mass groups of people and assembling a team. This is the work of a county public health department, but our county public health department did not have the resources to intervene at the level that it needed to for a place like Lewis or UCSB. And so we had to create all that. We are not public health officials, but we had to step in and create all that because if we didn't, the consequences would be really dire. And so with all those barriers in place, and despite all those barriers, I think people were still able to step up and respond. Had those support elements been in place, I think our response would have been much quicker and much more effective. And sadly, I think very well our death toll would have been a lot lower than it is, but it was unfortunate. Are you more optimistic with, you know, the recent election of Biden and what that might mean for the COVID response once he's inaugurated in January? Uh, yes, very much so. I think just the fact that from the get-go, he was acknowledging that the virus is a thing and was wearing a mask. Those are two really big positives in my book. Um, he recently announced who's going to be on his COVID task force, and they were all a bunch of MDs, which is also refreshing to see. That wasn't necessarily always the case. And so, yes, I am hopeful that we'll have more of a central, intentional effort to control it and acknowledgement that, yes, it's real. And yes, we as a nation need to do something at all levels. Well, Dr. Javenbacht, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I think it's really important to allow people to kind of hear how this is all working from an insider's perspective. So we really appreciate all the work you're doing and we thank you for setting aside part of your Sunday to come chat with us. Of course, thank you all for your time and getting this out there. I think it's really important information. I think the students being involved getting the word out and getting good information out to people. It's really, really, it's a really, really important part of our response. Thank you so much. Here are some other hot headlines from the Daily Nexus. UCPD has identified the individual who died at Campus Point on November 12th as UCSB employee, Jeff Jewell. The investigation into his death is ongoing. On Thursday, November 19th, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced a curfew for counties in the purple tier, including Santa Barbara County. Starting Saturday, November 22nd, non-essential travel will be restricted between the hours of 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. Opinion staff writers share their thoughts on which foods should grace your Thanksgiving table and which should most certainly not. Check it out on dailynexus.com. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Ali Javanbacht, and the Hot Off the Pod team, Emily Kosis and Josh and Manti. For more updates, episodes, and behind the scenes, follow at Hot Off the Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and or Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe to Hot Off the Pod on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you next time.